0: Learn who rules over you. Simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH. and am your host today. is Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of my dear friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with
1: us? I am with you. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And uh, today, folks, Peter has got uh, a very um, important topic relevant to all of us in the West, especially at the present time called The Real Story of the Rising Resistance to Globalism. So where would you like to start us off today, Peter?
1: I'm sure many people are interested in the developments in Italy. Now, of course, we are not Italian and we do not know the internal politics much, but it's interesting how this fits into rising resistance to globalism. And you can see it all over from the massive protests in Canada against the covid lockdowns from the massive protests in Australia and New Zealand which were brutally uh, shut down by governments to what's going on in Netherlands a huge protest by the farmers and also many of the fishing uh, trawlers as well you can see not just the farmers but the fishermen joining in as well protesting against a world economic forum uh, globalist and uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutter and his insane policies of agricultural suicide where he is demanding that the Italian, uh, sorry, that the Netherlands farmers literally euthanize more than half of their cattle, shut down over 11,000 farms and uh, make uh, the entire operation of farms in Netherlands uh, cost ineffective. It, it's a catastrophic, and the resistance is huge, colossal, and with tremendous support shown from around Europe. But we can see at the same time, the globalists are really disturbed. And we're hearing bizarre comments such as when, for example, the Hungarian prime minister was elected again uh, uh, after an unprecedented fourth term, and the EU saying that this is a sad day for democracy and this is a defeat for democracy. So the vast majority of the people of Hungary voting for their successful prime minister who opposes the globalist agenda and who opposes the mass migration of Muslims and others into their Christian country and so on. Uh, this is a defeat for democracy. Uh, similarly, you can hear the EU's horrified that you've got a pro-life, pro-family candidate winning the prime ministership in Italy, and it's actually quite extraordinary because uh, this is the first woman ever elected in Italy, and uh, if she was a leftist, well, they would be you know singing her praises that this is a triumph for gender uh, affirmative action, this is a triumph for feminism and so on. But no, because she's pro-life and pro-family and conservative, Candidate, They hate her. And that is interesting. So what we, we've got here is Giorgia Maloney, uh, who is the head of the Brothers of Italy party, has won a colossal amount of the vote. And she campaigned on on what this sounds awfully obvious to you and I, but it just shows how radical the globalists have taken the agenda that all of these statements can be sounded like some serious resistance. I am a woman. I am a mother. I am Italian. I am a Christian. And you cannot take that away from me. I mean, this has been one of the major speeches that over and over again, uh, Georgia Maloney has been making the stand that she is a woman. She is a mother. She is an Italian. She is a Christian. And all these things are under attack. As she has said, and this is what's garnered her a party phenomenal growth so that they've grown 600% from the last election to this one in terms of support, she's not only opposing the swamping of their identity uh, through this mass migration of people who don't share their culture or their religion or their principles or their faith, and uh, she's making a stand on there's two genders and I am a woman and I'm a mother and I'm an Italian and I'm a Christian. And she says yes to natural families, no to the LGBT lobby, yes to sexual identity, no to gender ideology, yes to the culture of life, no to the abyss of death. And it's it's a shock that, in fact, uh, in Italy, which should be a very pro-life country, I think, abortion is legal through the first 90 days of pregnancy. And uh, uh, they have got a very low birth rate in Italy. And if you've got this picture of Italy being this mother uh, serving uh, pasta to her large family overflowing the dining room table, I mean, that's kind of gone. They've got an extremely low birth rate with the danger at their survival in the future. And so, as this candidate, Giorgio Maloney, has said, we need our families to have children. We need lots of children. And uh, uh, she has made strong stands against same-sex unions and civil unions and all of these, the commercialization of the female body, she says, and commercialization of uh, babies born. Um, She says, we've been treated like commodities, like slaves. And uh, she's uh, against all of this. She says, she is not homophobic, but every child has the right to have a mother and a father for stability. Um, And while she was brought up in a single parent home, she says, I... Um, see that this is not healthy for the children, for the future, and so on, and uh, we need father and mother to be involved in. So she's been making very strong uh, stands, for example, saying that she had introduced a naval blockade to patrol the Mediterranean and to return the migrants to their countries of origin and not assist in allowing these invaders to come and swamp their country and destroy their identity. So uh, I don't know this Giorgio Maloney, of course, um, and We've never met her, but we can say on the ground, the spectacular, stupendous, 600% growth for her party is obviously due to these stands for the bulk of the people in Italy have made it very clear in this last election, 25th of September elections, that they support the identity of the country being maintained, not being swamped. Uh, They support families and they're pro-life. And they do not support globalism. And so it's extraordinary, of course, all around, even before this um, electoral victory of the Brothers of Italy and Giorgio Maloney, she's been described as far right, fascist, extremist, neo Nazi, and all the rest of it. And, you know, the most far right, extremist, fascist since Mussolini. And so obviously, when the mass media are attacking people like that, then they must be doing something right, or at least saying something which is against the narrative which you're allowed to, to take. Uh, she comes from working-class background. Uh, she is not a university graduate. This is somebody who's worked as a waitress and as a nanny before becoming full-time in politics. And uh, in interesting, uh, she was the youngest cabinet minister to be appointed to Minister of Youth in 2008 by Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. and uh, she's made her faith a central part of her campaign, and she supported pro-life and pro-family policies, and uh, I believe it's quite clear that when people are supporting these sort of moves, it does upset the globalists, and we've seen this with Brexit and the America First, Make America Great Again, and other uh, stands that the globalists want us to be genderless, or at least gender-confused, They don't like people being male and female. They don't like people being mothers and fathers. They prefer you to be parent one and parent two. And they don't want you to use the gender pronouns uh, of tradition. They want you to now go into new gender pronouns. And to have somebody making a stand, probably the most revolutionary or reactionary thing you can do, the most profound resistance against the globalist new world order today is to be straight. To be Christian, to get married, to have children, to have lots of children, <laughs> and uh, to grow up in intact families. I mean, these things seem to be the, the the worst thing on the planet, if you want to believe the narrative of the globalists, because the globalists are trying to convince you that the greatest problem in the world today is climate change. Well, that's not what the average person on the street thinks in almost any country on the planet. There's governments who think that. But you won't find that being the concern of people on the ground. The people on the ground are concerned about the economy and education and crime and violence and their children. And uh, they're deeply concerned about their governments getting them involved in what looks like a new war or even a nuclear war. And on the ground, people have a lot different concerns than gender pronouns and climate change, which it seems the governments are most concerned about. And yet we can hear from the German government to the Canadian government, it doesn't matter what the voters on the ground think or say. We are going to do and then they go on with whether it is uh, the green energy ideas, whether it is their ideas of climate change or destroying the agricultural self-sufficiency of the country or supporting a losing concern in a long dragged out war in Ukraine, which has no chance of success in the long term and uh, which has tremendous danger and potential of causing a general war, possibly even a world war, and even a nuclear war. And uh, on the ground, you can see tremendous resistance to this in in the Czech Republic and in Poland, and you can see people protesting against us all over, and even in Iran, not that we know exactly all that's going on, but you can see tremendous resistance on the ground for the government interfering in people's lives. In in the case of Iran, it's a woman who was arrested for uh, violating their head covering rules, wearing a hijab, and uh, she died in police custody. And now there's massive protests on the streets. So all over we can see rising resistance, rising resistance to totalitarianism, rising resistance to government overreach, rising resistance to globalism. And plainly, the average person on the ground, and you know, it, it doesn't matter how messed up our societies are, the bulk of people on the ground do not want to be LGBTQ gender confusion Men pretending to be women partaking in women's sports to destroy the competitive opportunities of women who've devoted their lives to their skills in these sports. The average person on the ground does not want to commit agricultural suicide, economic suicide, or get into a nuclear war with Russia and all these, or China for that matter. And so on the ground, you can see many of the ants are rising, to use their terms. You can see many of the people on the ground are protesting and are resisting and we see this all over. And um, just in South Africa, um, I was this last Saturday involved in a uh, major strategy session for people campaigning for Cape independence. And we had a large number, dozens of top leaders and influencers and activist campaigners uh, representing heads of parties, members of uh, members of parliament, uh, city councillors, and. Uh, uh, founders of parties and and uh, pressure groups as uh, activist groups, all united in a common concern for decentralisation and secession, for independence for the Cape of Good Hope, and you could just see the vibrant insights, a real brains trust, intelligent suggestions on how we can solve the problems. And you know there are solutions. Our governments keep offering us problems as usual, and uh, just to. Let some of our listeners know the kind of problems we're facing in South Africa right now. We're facing level six, uh, stage six power failures. That means there's six power failures a day of an average of two hours a time. Uh, Sometimes it's been as long as four and a half hours of power failure continuously. You can imagine what this does for restaurants and businesses and printing firms and all sorts of other industries where suddenly the power goes out and it's out for a few hours. How can you in a restaurant, you've got a half cooked meal, your customers aren't going to wait another two and a half hours for you to finish the meal when the power comes back on two hours, if it does. And this is catastrophic, and this has been going on for a long time. Uh, We normally have level two or level four, but level six is just, uh, level two is two power failures a day, level four is four power failures a day, and level six is six power failures a day. And, uh, And these are scheduled power failures, by the way, and this is countrywide. So and some places, even worse than that. We have places where they don't have water because the government's been taking the rates and taxes for years, but they haven't been maintaining or um, in any way improving the plumbing or the electricity or whatever's in the area. And so these things are breaking down. And so, uh, for example, one of the very first cities in in South Africa, which was once the uh, the capital city of uh, Transkei, Umtata, which was the first of South Africa's uh, black homelands to receive its independence back in 1976, the entire water system collapsed about 10 years ago, and uh, the plumbing just collapsed, and they couldn't get water in, in the capital city of what was once a vibrant and successful country called Transkei, now in the Eastern Cape. And uh, imagine a whole city without water flowing, because the plumbing system had collapsed because nobody had maintained it since 1976. They'd been collecting the rates and taxes to maintain it, but they just hadn't done the job. And so all over the country, we're seeing people who are rising up and are deciding to deflect their rates and taxes to some private companies who fix the potholes in the roads, who uh, provide alternative water arrangements, who provide boreholes or uh, help the people with electricity, as the case may be, whatever they need, or security. In fact, most communities in South Africa now have privatized security because the police are not providing security for us. So what we have now is um, city improvement districts. So for example, we may have uh, an improvement district in some suburban people pay extra to this private security company to provide the security which the police used to provide. Now we still expect to pay our taxes and our rates and taxes to national, provincial and municipal governments, but they're not doing the job. It's more like some kind of protection racket where you've got to pay the mafiosa for protection. They don't provide protection, but it means that at least they won't burn your shop down or come and smash your windows or beat you up or something, if, as long as you pay your protection money. Now, that's the way the mafia may work in uh, some place in Chicago and, and uh, Nevada and so on. Um, isn't it interesting, as the water levels in Nevada's lake has gone down, they've been finding all sorts of bodies, including strapped to chairs, uh, execution-style or with concrete socks or in some barrel. And because the water level has gone down so much, I've seen a whole lot of these mafia hits, corpses are suddenly surfacing, literally. Um, but at any rate, we digress. The point is, uh, what's the difference between organized crime and our government? Well, organized crime is organized. And what's the difference between uh, the mafia and our government? Well, a mafia turns a profit. And so these are the kind of jokes that are going on in our country. I heard one of these jokes when I was in Zambia some time ago and uh, they were making jokes about South Africa, which is really funny because South Africa used to make jokes about Zambia. But that's when Zambia was a socialist country. Now Zambia is officially a Christian country and South Africa is no longer a Christian country. It's now a socialist country. So there I was in Zambia and this uh, government minister said, you know, we had the South African ambassador around here and we introduced him to the Zambian Minister of Naval Affairs. And he said, you can't have a Minister of Naval Affairs. You're a landlocked country. The Zambians said, but in South Africa, you have a Minister of Justice. <laughs> the Zambians all laughing. And this is the point. It's, it's a valid joke because, yes, we've got a Minister of Justice, but they lock up people who are innocent and they allow the criminals to run free. In fact, the, as many have said, our parliament is one of the largest collections of uh, uh, criminals in the country under one roof. And this is the way it goes. It's shocking. Globalism is tyranny. Globalism is uh, centralization. And if we want to understand where we are, we just need to read a book like George Orwell's 1984 and uh, Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World. And we've got a mixture between the big brothers watching you, surveillance states where words are being changed and meanings are being changed into new speak, and where people who say things that the government doesn't like, are unpersoned uh, and who disappear down the memory hole and where history is rewritten so that there's no longer any past. There's just an endless present where the party is always right and every street name needs to be renamed and every men- monument needs to be pulled down and changed and where people uh, have their their past erased because the best way to control the future is to change the history. And the best way to change the people is to take away from them their knowledge of their own history. And all of these warnings from George Orwell's 1984, where you've got the Minister or Ministry of Peace, who organized the wars. You've got the Ministry of Plenty, who organized the starvation and the rationing, and a Ministry of Truth, who deal with lies and propaganda. And you have the Ministry of Love, who deals with the torture. And this is just so true. Uh, and George Orwell knew these things. Why did George Orwell recognize these things and see it coming? Well, he was a policeman, in the imperial police force first in Burma, and he, he was a journalist and editor. And, uh, in fact, he worked for the British Propaganda Department in the Second World War, and he served in the BBC. And most people miss the point that George Orwell has his primary antagonist uh, called Winston, and he works in a Ministry of Truth, in something that looks very much like the BBC. In fact, he said, "I I modelled the Ministry of Truth on the BBC," and uh, he set this in London. He didn't set this in Moscow or Berlin or uh, in Rome. He set it in London because he saw these things coming because he had to deal with a lot of the lies as a propagandist in the BBC during the Second World War. And George Orwell in 1948 writes the book 1984, and it's. It's so prophetic. It's no longer actually a joke. We are there with thought police and thought crimes and even face <laughs> crimes. And, and then you have Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where he, in the 1930s, foresaw a future technologically advanced society where people were endlessly distracted. Uh, they were subdued by endless distractions, lots and lots and lots and lots of entertainment, and subdued by drugs where everyone was taking some kind of drugs to keep them subdued and uh, uh, where they were endlessly distracted by 24 hours a day entertainment and uh, uh, so-called news. Well, it seems that we've got some kind of mixture now between the 1984 Orwellian Big Brothers Watching You newspeak where uh, you could be guilty of a thought crime and the Aldous Huxley's Brave New World where people are endlessly distracted by 24 hours a day entertainment and news news. And they subdued by more and more drugs, including at schools that have a big post outside saying this is a drug free zone while the children's side line up for their Ritalin. How interesting. They literally are drugging the kids to subdue them uh, while declaring with a straight face that this is a drug free zone. So here we are today with a globalist pushing their endless agenda. And it's a globalist agenda. It is a frightening agenda. And as the Georgia Guidestones made clear, and as the World Economic Forum has made clear, uh, they want to have a world which maintains its population under 500 million, which is a bit of a problem because that means there's about 8 billion surplus people, uh, useless eaters or whatever they want to call us, who they want to get rid of. And how do they want to get rid of us? Well, abortion obviously helps a lot. LGBTQ really helps too because not having families. Um, uh, Feminism has also brought things down uh, dramatically when so many women don't want to be mothers or can't be mothers uh, for different reasons or they now are being uh, made sterilized by a whole lot of genetically modified all sorts of things and vaccines which in many cases are sterilizing agents. But you know, wars might kill their millions but famine can kill its hundreds of millions. And so... You can see now that the whole LGBTQ agenda, the whole global warming, endless crisis, overpopulation propaganda, all of this has united to bring the world's population down, but not enough. And so wars and famines are the way of the future, but what also helps is plagues. And if the plagues aren't deadly enough, don't worry, they can get you through the vaccines. And so... You can see the globalist agenda is advancing, but resistance is also rising. And the resistance is plainly seen in the Brexit, America first, make America great again, and the Italian, I am a woman, I am a mother, I am an Italian, I am a Christian. You will not take this away from us. And uh, this has obviously gotten support on the ground, and so plainly from the Netherlands to Hungary, all the way to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, all over the world, you can see there is rising resistance to the a globalist agenda, and we should be encouraged by it. So some of the things that we learned on this weekend uh, planning strategy session for Cape Independence is there are so many solutions. The The governments endlessly want to tell us about the problems. The media want to tell us about the problems, but they never want to give us solutions aside from you've got to give up more of your freedom, uh, you've got to put on masks, you've got to (laughs) take this vaccination, shut up, uh, roll up your sleeve and let us inject something in you that you're not allowed to know what the contents are, nor what the real trials discussed or the dangers of it. You know, are you a conspiracy theorist or what? Nope. just, Just keep quiet and take it and muzzle up and roll up your sleeve and let's give you a booster shot. Another one, another one and so on. And all of this has now, unfortunately from my perspective, but unfortunately from their perspective, brought about more people being awake and alert to the fact that our government is not our friend and our government's not trustworthy and the media is lying to us and the medical profession doesn't really seem to be that concerned about our health and the bankers are actually undermining the economy and they're actually stealing from us through massive, massive inflation of... Uh, wealth transfers. This is colossal. In fact, we're living through, we're told at the moment, one of the biggest wealth transfers in history as billions of people's livelihood savings pensions are just taken and are reallocated to banksters and others who have rigged the system, uh, the whole rising and falling and uh, inflation, which is a hidden tax. So in this situation, is there hope for the future? Well, yes, there is hope for the future. And uh, the hope is the resistance on the ground, and the people who are choosing family and who are choosing children, who are choosing home education, who are choosing to resist the globalist new world order, who are switching off the propaganda indoctrination uh, <laughs> mediums, and who are working for a peaceful Swiss-style decentralized independence uh, for the Singapore model of free trade and free market tax havens. And these things can work. Uh, there is no doubt. And in history, we've seen many secessions that have worked. I mean, the Bible virtually begins in the book of Exodus already, the second book of the Bible, let my people go. The nation of Israel grew out of secession from Egypt. And in the Bible, a nation is an ethno-linguistic people group with a shared faith. And the scriptures make it clear that the Hebrews remained Hebrews, even after over 400 years in Egypt. They never became Egyptians. We're not geographic accidents. We're demographic descendants. And the scriptures emphasize that all the families of the nations of the earth will sing the praise of the Creator in every language and tongue in heaven. Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Interesting. Even in heaven, tribes, tongues, people and nations are relevant. And... So it is that we can see throughout the Bible, nations uh, coming out of even secession, the secession of the 10 northern tribes of Israel from Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, was also of the Lord when the king wanted to mobilize an army against the northern 10 tribes. Uh, So we had the prophet come and say to them, no, uh, do not fight against your brethren. This thing is from the Lord and they were told to go back to their tents, which they did. The scripture makes it clear, civil government is to serve its citizens. All authority is limited and delegated and accountable. And Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you would have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. All authority is delegated by God. It's limited and it's answerable to God. And civil governments are to serve their citizens. Jesus said the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those who exercise authority are called benefactors. But it shall not be so amongst you. On the contrary, he who is greatest amongst you, let him be like the younger. He who governs should be as he who serves. And that concept that civil government is to be a servant of its citizens is a uniquely Christian idea that originates from these very verses. Hence the term prime minister, first servant, and cabinet ministers, who should be deacons of God for justice. Before the Reformation, the general view of government was summarized in the Latin phrase rex lex, or the king is the law, rex meaning king and lex meaning law, rex lex. Well, that, that king is law, uh, the king is above the law, the king's word is law. That was inverted during the Reformation to the Latin phrase lex rex. The law is king. The king is under the law. And the book Lex Rex published in 1644 during the English Civil War made it clear utilizing arguments from scripture that absolutism and statism and centralization is unbiblical. Covenant is important. The rule of law is important. As any prince or king may command loyalty, the king owes his subjects protection. If a government fails to provide protection and the rule of law and respect for life and property, then the citizens are absolved of any loyalty to an abusive ruler who has failed to fulfill his duty. And so as we owe our king loyalty, so the king of kings requires loyalty and obedience from all kings who are under him. And so if our rulers are in rebellion to the king of kings, we must not join them in their war against God and against his laws. If a ruler commands that which is against the law of God, we must obey God rather than man. When rulers command things like abortion, when they command things... Uh, like euthanasia, when they command mandatory vaccinations or any other evils like that, they have overreached, they have extended themselves, they are infringing on the laws of God, they are going against our conscience, they're violating Magna Carta, they're violating religious freedom, freedom of conscience, they're violating coronation oaths, and it's our duty and right to resist them. As John Knox said, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. And so the reformers taught that if central government is corrupt, wicked, and oppressive, the lesser magistrates have the right and the duty to resist. Provincial governors, mayors, and magistrates may and must resist and suppress tyrants in central government. Rulers are not permitted to rule for their own self interest. If central government fails in their promises and duties, the people are exempt from obedience and taxes, and the contract is null and void. Romans 13 makes clear the duties of civil government are to be ministers of justice under God answerable to the creator, a terror to evil, a minister of justice, executing wrath on those who practice evil, not to be a terror to those who do good, but to protect the law-abiding. And of course, we must obey God rather than man. So we have seen throughout history many secessions which have been successful, like Switzerland, which receded from Austria in 1291. And it's an island of peace in a continent often torn apart by war. And an example of excellence in many ways, but also the birthplace of the Red Cross, one of the world's oldest, best-known humanitarian organizations. And they have provided sanctuary for those fleeing from colossal conflicts and they have won the highest standards of living in the world. And they are sending their Red Cross out to wars around the world, not to bomb the people, but to bandage them and to give them medicines and to help and to feed people who are starving. And so in history, there are many countries that have seceded, like Netherlands seceded from Spain in 1568, and Belgium seceded from Netherlands in 1830, and Texas seceded from Mexico in 1836, and Nicaragua from Guatemala in 1838. Norway seceded from Sweden in 1905. Finland seceded from Russia in 1917. The Republic Islands seceded from Great Britain 100 years ago, 1922. Pakistan seceded from India in 1947. Taiwan from China in 1949. Singapore seceded from Malaysia in 1965 and has turned an unpromising island swamp into one of the most potent economic powers in Asia by being a tax haven and following free enterprise principles. And so we could look at many examples like Croatia and Slovenia seceding from Yugoslavia in 1991 and Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia seceding from Russia in 1991. And Eritrea seceding from Ethiopia also 1991. Slovakia seceded from Czechoslovakia, 1993. East Timor from Indonesia in 2002. South Sudan secede from Sudan in 2011. And right now, the Nubans of South Kordofan are fighting for the independence from Sudan. The Kurds of Turkey, Iraq and Iran, are seeking their own country, Kurdistan. And the people of the Cape of Good Hope, the Western Cape, the site of the oldest parliament in the Southern Hemisphere, is seeking independence from South Africa because the central government is failing to keep the lights on is failing to keep the water flowing is failing to keep the streets repaired is, is basically becoming a failed state and we either go down with the titanic or we launch out an own independent cape of good hope and so uh, to do this we have got plans on on what works and and how this can actually function effectively how we can reclaim our municipalities and how we can uh, return the control down to the lowest levels. And one of the things that that was determined as the key to restoring our country from the corrupt, chaotic shambles of a mess that it has become, where easily four trillion rand has been stolen by government in corruption. Uh, more than a third of our gross domestic product has been stolen by government corruption. What's our solution? Total decentralization to the extent that all control is brought back down to the municipal level. So that basically, the Cape of Good Hope would be a confederation of microstates in an independent Cape of Good Hope. And by microstates, what one means is that sovereignty is really being devolved down to the local municipality, where ratepayers and homeowners are the ones who have the votes. Now in a national election, which only affects foreign affairs and defense, because um, central government will have no more powers than that needed for defense and foreign affairs all the other powers go down to the local municipality or canton. And that's that the police must come from that municipality. The police must be trained and and armed and paid by the local municipality. Because when you have the police coming from that municipality, they won't be standing by while their uncle's or neighbor's uh, business is looted and burned Um, because they are committed to that community and they're answerable to that community and they live in that community. And uh, we must have a situation where a primary control of municipalities is returned to the homeowners and the ratepayers that they have control. And similarly with the schools, that the parents need to be controlling the teachers and the textbooks which are molding the minds of their children. You cannot allow politicians to mold the minds of future voters. So uh, on basic levels like policing, economics, taxation, education, all down back to the local levels, Back to the communities, back to the parents, and uh, we, looking at these things, we have so many different solutions. So that, uh, for example, just um, as far as taxation goes, abolishing all taxation, every single bit of taxation, value added tax (VAT), GST, uh, income tax, the whole lot, and replacing it with teal, total economic activity levy, which takes a half a percent from every uh, bank transaction. So any electronic transaction, half a percent goes to the uh, taxes needed for running the government, both national and municipal. And uh, that will be sufficient. We've had the finances say, they will get in more than they're getting in now. And we're like, how is that even possible? Um, just a quarter of a percent? Yes, because all will pay it. <laughs> that includes the big, massive multinational companies and so on, uh, who often find their way around, where basically what's happening right now is the middle class end up paying most of the income tax. And there's a lot of theft by government. And in fact, most of the money we spend at the petrol pump goes to the government through taxes and levies of different sorts. To think that the government gets more out of every litre of petrol sold, than the petrol company, the oil company, and the oil producing country combined. So in our country, at least, Taxes make up the vast majority of what we're paying at the petrol pump. Well, we could solve our problems dramatically just by cutting it out, and suddenly petrol price would plunge to less than half what it is now. There's so many creative solutions to what's going on right now. You just think how you can uh, get rid of the red tape, that we don't need all this bureaucracy. We don't need this colossal revenue service place, which is infringing on people's lives and which is so unequal in its applications. So there are solutions. There are opportunities. How are you going to bring in enough employers and uh, job creators, well, by becoming a tax haven like uh, what uh, Singapore did. And I know that this works because when I want to get Bibles printed to go into Sudan, for example, and we've taken hundreds of thousands of Bibles into Sudan over the years, and how do we do it? Well, we can't print it in Kenya, because in Kenya the cost of Bibles is so high because there's so much taxation. So we get our Bibles printed in Singapore or Taiwan or South Korea who can print the Bibles for one-fifth the cost that Kenya will print it for, which is just next to Sudan. And so, for example, I can, instead of paying $10 a Bible, if I get it printed in Kenya, I can get them printed for $2 a Bible if I get them printed in Singapore, for example, and that includes the shipping to get them to Mombasa. And uh, why would I not want to print five Bibles instead of one for the same amount of money? And uh, that's how we've managed to take in tens of thousands of Bibles, hundreds of thousands ultimately, into Sudan, uh, is by going to a place with free enterprise, and which is a tax haven. So, of course, what does this do? Well, it chases jobs away from the country that overtaxes, and it creates jobs and business for those that have lower taxes, which are tax havens. And I think that... um, Many people in Britain, for example, even remember when some of your most productive people and authors were moving to Spain and other countries to avoid the overtaxation of particularly under the Labour governments in in Britain, which was penalising people for productivity. So there's many ways that we can resist the globalist uh, New World Order agenda. Uh, And the first is to be straight and to be Christian. And to be married, and to have children, and to build families, because the family is the basic building block of society. But even uh, that is foundational. But but even on the basis of what do we listen to? If we will, if we want to be free and independent and resist globalism, you've got to stop listening to the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation and the Clinton News Network or the Communist News Network, and reading Slime Magazine and Useless News and World Report and Newspeak. And who cares what the CBS's, ABC's, NBC's and the other globalist parroting propaganda disinformation agencies are saying. So if we want freedom, we've got to think free. And so the first thing to do is secede from, declare independence from those who are indoctrination propaganda agencies, which give disinformation instead of information, and to support those that are uh, truly independent, uh, media for news, same thing with entertainment, support family friendly entertainment, not Hollywood's vile, perverted blasphemous industry. And uh, similarly when it comes to education, you don't send your children to where they're going to be indoctrinated, where they're going to be taught what to think and uh, gender confusion and critical race theory and all the other propaganda. No, we, we home educate or we support independent Christian schools which are family friendly and family based in which are based on, built on the rock of God's word and creation and facts and morals and standards and the Ten Commandments, and not all the absolute perverse uh, child abuse, which is taking place uh, in the name of education of all today. And uh, these are key things. So there's a lot that we can do to join this global movement, this rising resistance to globalism. Uh, back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. Um one thing that you said that you may be surprised about, because, of course, we know the situation in South Africa, um, was a first-world country, first-ever heart transplant, and now it's, uh, since it was turned over to the ANC, it's becoming a third-world country with all these power cuts and things like that. And that's um, that's progress we told. And um, it was all bad before when they were doing their first heart transplant. Oh, that was such a bad country. But now it's a wonderful country. Um, it really is absolutely pathetic and it just goes to show how these people in power their desire is to destroy us especially Christians especially Christians and you may be surprised you may not be but I know people that pay a couple of hundred pounds a month to have a private security force in their area because the police don't police it anymore but we're constantly reading about how the police have all the resources necessary to go and arrest somebody who said something online that a certain group doesn't like and that group may vary from time to time but they're more keen on arresting people for things they say than arresting people for acts of violence or arresting people for breaking into people's homes and that's why these areas now have to have their own have to have their own private security force that they pay for otherwise they'll just get broken into And the police say, we haven't got the resources. Oh, but you've got the resources to attack people for what we're told in the West is our democratic right to free speech, which obviously doesn't exist. Otherwise, you wouldn't be arresting people for what they say. I have friends that are in prison, have been in prison for things that they've said. So how is that a democratic right to free speech? Who determines what you can't say? And I wanted to raise that because I want people to be aware around the world that this isn't something restricted to South Africa. And I believe many of you listening will know people, or in your own countries, respective countries, will know of these private security forces that don't just operate in gated communities. We're talking about actual villages and towns that, you know, they, they get enough people together and they try and recruit as many people in the town as they can because the more people they get signed up, the more the price drops because it's generally, it's run not for profit. Um, and so you're always going to need a couple of cars or one car at least patrolling and you're going to be paying for that uh, private security officer and the cost of the vehicle and all that you're going to be paying the same if one person signs up or if 100 people sign up, you see and so that's the beauty of it so in some ways it's a good thing because we're disengaging from the uh, nationwide police forces which are nothing more than stormtroopers for the globalists that's all they are now the police forces around the world—they are just stormtroopers for the globalists. They will, they work on their political agenda, on hearing story after story out of America. Somebody says something, and they get beaten up or killed, and nothing's done to them because oh, they said it—they were racist. Or the latest I heard was um, it was justified because they thought he was a Republican. I mean, this is how ludicrous it is, but it's because. You've got this group in charge. You've just said, "Yeah, this is what what our police forces are now. They're going to impose our will on the people." And if that's not communism, I don't know what is. Peter, your comments, mm. please.
1: Oh, that that is so true. Uh, this is what George Orwell war- warned us about: thought police, prosecuting for thought crimes, and even face crimes, even expression on your face, which might indicate that you are disbelieving of the government's uh, propaganda and their five-year plans and all this sort of thing. Uh, just A face crime can get you arrested and tortured, mind you, by the Ministry of Love, of course. So, uh, yes, we, we are right there. We're in a situation where the police cannot deal with violent rioters burning and looting shops and attacking people on the streets. That they can't deal with. But somehow or another, they can go after somebody because of a Facebook post or because of a... Uh, thing that they said or might have said or didn't say even. So, yes, this, this is absolutely bizarre. And I remember when I first read 1984, and, and it was a school textbook in Rhodesia, we, we had to, I thought this is very funny, you know, Animal Farm and uh, 1984 were, were textbooks in, in Rhodesia and, and uh, I thought, you know, this is this is hilarious, but this could never happen, at least not in the free Western countries. You know, how on earth could that ever happen in Great Britain? And so, uh, in the 1970s as a teenager, I dismissed the possibility that this could be relevant to our future. I just thought, well, he's kind of telling us what's going on in the Soviet Union and Red China and so on. But uh, little did I know that in my own lifetime, I would see these things take place. And it is shocking. But uh, horrifying as these things are, this gives us the opportunity, the duty, the responsibility to resist. And it's so important to resist. I mean, first of all, not to believe their lies and their propaganda. That's that's what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. The the most important act of resistance in a dictatorship is to not believe the lie, to refuse to believe the lie. And that's what uh, ultimately brought down the Soviet Union is the amount of people on the ground, just they stopped clapping, applauding, cheering, repeating the lie. Um, so, of course, that that's one of the things we've got to do. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Peter, I'm looking at um, the Wikipedia page on globalism, okay, and it's quite quite amusing. I'm not going to read it out to make a lot of sense, because um, I'm looking for the definition. They've actually got a section definition, and it's up to the audience if they want to look that up. Um, uh, You just look up Wikipedia globalism. It should come up. But they've got different people, and just going through it now, none of them actually define it um canadian philosopher john walston saul treated globalism as coterminus with neoliberalism and neoliberal globalization he argued that far from being an inevitable force globalization is already breaking up into contradictory pieces and that citizens are reasserting their national interests in both positive and destructive right ways well okay that's a guy talking about uh the upshot of globalism in certain places so that's not a definition but if people look at this if they can find an actual definition that is put in by <laughs> um wikipedia please send it over and i promise to read it out read it out on our next show and the reason that i did this is um i've been looking for a potential image for our show and i thought this one was quite good because we talk about um the, our show title is the real story of the rising resistance to globalism and this just has a picture of the globe it says globalism rising But their definition of globalism, which you won't find on Wikipedia, it just says authoritarianism and the demise of civil liberties. Would you say that was an Hmm. accurate definition of uh, globalism, Peter?
1: Well, uh, the rise of government totalitarian control and the demise of uh, civil liberties definitely is part of it. Uh, I think one of the best exposés of globalism that we will find is in Revelation chapter 13, where Revelation 13 warns us about a one-world government with a one-world economic system and a one-world interfaith religion. That, I think, gets at the heart of what globalism is. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Yes, that is extremely important. And um, I urge you all to Read the book of Revelation. Obviously, I urge you to read the whole Bible. But at this stage, uh, even for people who uh, are not Christians, have a look at it and see if you can it, it, read read what read it, as I say. Uh, Peter mentioned uh, chapter 13, did you, Peter? Yes, Revelation 13. Last book of the Bible, chapter 13. Yeah. So just have a look at that. And have a think about it and think you know does it look like what's happening in the world today and, and really have a deep look at it have to think to yourself well you know is this something a bit like Nostradamus here where it's so woolly it could be twisted to apply to anything because I don't think that at all but this could be your way in to or this could be your way to Christ um I wasn't a christian when i wrote the synagogue of satan back in 2006 but i became one through that work i i became a christian through kind of the other side being told and finding out who jesus christ was talking about in the bible and that led me to becoming a christian so we don't all start off in life uh and and we we have our different ways to Christ let's just say that I'm I'm, I'm butchering this a bit and I do apologize what I'm trying to say is this is an opportunity for you to find your way to Christ but even if you and if you are a believer just read it as well or a non-believer read it it's so important because I think it's the roadmap of what's happening today Peter I'm Mm -hmm. sorry I butchered that any thoughts
1: Yes, well, interestingly, on Saturday, I met a man that I haven't met before. He's, he's quite an eloquent writer, and I've seen some of his things before, but he's part of our Cape Independence Forum strategy meeting on, on Saturday. And uh, um, while we're talking, he said, you know, you, you, you don't seem to realize that I used to be a Marxist. And I was like, hmm, what? He said, yes, I was part of the Roads Must Fall movement on University of Cape Town. He's a young man in his late 20s. And um, so in 2015, he was part of the whole Roads Must Fall rioting Mob, totally Marxist, and he said, um, "In fact, that's what led me to Christ." So I'm like, um, "How?" So he said, as he studied revolution, he said he has brought up in a privileged home and he thought that Marxism was the way forward and so on. But the more he was involved in these atheist and Marxist groups, he saw how anti-Christian they were and how hypocritical they were and how um, you know utterly selfish they were and so on. And at some point, he said he realized, even going back, he kept thinking, well, this is obviously a bit corrupted. Let's go back to the original uh, revolutionary Marxist groups. And he got back the French Revolution. He saw it was all totally anti-Christian. So it led him to start investigating Christianity because he thought, if these hypocrites that I've been wasting my time uh, serving um, all hated Christ so much, why is that? I don't see them hating a Buddha or Krishna or Um, allow anything like this. Why why are they always against Christ? And um, interestingly enough, that led him to becoming officially a Christian because he had seen the revolutionaries and the globalists all anti-Christ and the hypocrites. Now that's from somebody who was on the inside for years. Interesting. I think people should look at this when a lot of the enemies of your freedom hate Christ. It should make you look at Jesus afresh. Back to you, Andrew
0: thank you peter i'm glad i said what i said because of that story it um, it prompted from you that is so important folks it just goes to show and this is biblical as well when we look at the likes of paul uh, in the bible and and how he was the opposite really of a christian and he became a christian would that be an accurate statement peter
1: well yes uh, so saul of tarsus who was a persecutor of the church becomes the apostle paul after his road to damascus uh, experience, being confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus and being struck off his horse, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he has commanded, go into the city, get baptized. And he became one of the most dynamic missionary evangelists of all time and uh, one of the greatest contributors to the New Testament in terms of the epistles of Paul, Romans, and so on. So, yes, um, uh, this this is the thing. You, if you, It's better to have opposition than to have apathy because many opponents of Christianity end up being converted, whereas apathy is is totally deadly. If a person is apathetic, there's not much you can do with them. But even with opponents, we we can do something. And uh, I can number amongst my many friends, quite a number of people who used to be communists or jihadists who were confronted with the power of the gospel and were converted. And so, uh, yes, I would say to anyone who thinks, anyone who thinks that Christianity is irrelevant, ask why do the globalists spend so much time banning Christianity, suppressing the Bible, kicking prayer and Bible and 10 commands out of schools. And uh, I think, yes, if you love freedom, then you've got to look at the case for faith, because faith has been a foundation for all the great movements for freedom. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And I'll just make the final comment that if you despise cancel culture, if you think it's unjust and unfair, to use something you may have said or done years ago, even months ago, and your mind has changed, if you're that is allowed to be used against you and you think that's unfair, well, Christianity is the place for you because so do we, as Peter just demonstrated. He didn't turn around to this guy at his church and say, oh, you were a Marxist, okay, that's it, I'm not having you in my church. He didn't say to the jihadists or the other people he was referencing, and that is what Christianity is. It gives you the opportunity at any time, if you honestly have a faith in Christ, you honestly want to become a Christian, not going in there and all up, you know with one foot in, one foot out, something like that. But if you honestly mean it, and it may be difficult, that's why we're all called sinners. Um, that's there for you. Whereas the world today is a world of cancel culture, where it doesn't matter what you did in the past and you're doing the opposite now. That will be used against you if it's politically expedient for the powers that should not be to do so. Peter, please close us out with any further comments and then let the audience know where, how they can get in contact with you and where they can find your work.
1: Yes, certainly. I mean, the Bible is the greatest book of resistance to globalism, the greatest book for decentralization. Uh, This is why kings and queens used to be presented part of the coronation. This is the Lively oracles of God is the most valuable thing this world possesses. Uh, these are the laws for Christian principles. A rule in accordance with the gospel of Christ and the laws of God with justice and mercy. I mean, that's part of the coronation oath that Queen Elizabeth took. It's so important that we know the greatest book ever written and the most banned book in the Bible. The Bible is banned in something like 66 countries in the world. How about that? So um, <laughs> um, surely we should put some attention into the the book that inspired the Universal Education and Literacy Around the World Movements and um, uh, the book which is banned in more countries than any other book in history, uh, that should really make us think. So uh, if anyone wants to get hold of me, my email is peter at za. peter at frontline.org.za, our website www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you so much, Andrew.
0: Well, I did not know that the Bible banned in over 60 countries in the world around 66 66 countries in the world yes that's right amazing and we've talked about it folks so even in um my book i talked about abraham foxman wanting to restrict uh certain passages in the old testament or even cancel um the sorry not the old testament the new testament um they really want to go after that and if i can find it quickly um Just trying to see. Here it is. This is a Daily Mail article. Um, I'll include the link in the post for this show. I've covered it before, but it came out on the 23rd of November of 2018. So we're getting on for four years old. Jewish leaders are calling for new editions of the Bible and Quran to carry warning messages which highlight anti-Semitic passages in the holy texts. The recommendations have been made in a new document called An End to anti-semitism a catalog of policies to combat anti-semitism can you please close us out peter with that um interesting plaque you saw on the uh wall of the washington holocaust museum was
1: it yes absolutely extraordinary there was with general ben parton the um, pioneer of uh, precision guided weapons uh, general ben parton uh Air force retired he said, Peter, I want you to see something. So he took me downtown to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. This is now many years ago, something like 20 years ago. Or so, And um, so as we went in there, I was astounded to see on the wall. I was being hustled out at that time by uh, the um, director of the museum and his security people because I'd offered to give them materials, uh, pictures and eyewitness test me, things and large photos and banners uh, demonstrating the Holocaust in Rwanda. And uh, they were, uh, when they said, we're not interested in that, I said, I thought you were at the Holocaust Museum. Well, while being bustled out, we saw on the wall, in concrete, raised out of the wall, anti-Semitism began with the birth of Jesus Christ.
0: Shocking. There you go, folks. Um, so if you're a Christian, you will automatically be called an anti-Semite or you will automatically be told you're guilty of anti-Semitism according to that plaque on that wall and that's why when you see all these allegations of anti-Semitism here and anti-Semitism there just substitute the word Christian because that's what these people are doing in their own museums so that being said I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on a show entitled The Real Story of the rising resistance to globalism that's the real story of the rising resistance to globalism I want to thank you all for listening I'll be back with you all tomorrow and until then folks have a wonderful day and bye for now